What did the Learning Geeks and Geekette learn at the Learning 2018 conference? That's a lot of learns for one sentence, but hey, it's the Learning Geeks podcast. Let's rock and roll. Hello, everybody. Hey there. Welcome to our virtual geek clubhouse. So this is Bob Gerard. I am joined by my fellow learning geeks, Jake Gittleson and Dana Koch, and the newly christened learning geek at Michelle Voiko. Hi, everyone. Hey. 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 So <laughs> we are here uh, on this show to kind of do our post show from the Learning 2018 conference that Elliot Maisie ran a couple weeks ago down in Orlando. If you listen to our 20, Learning 2018 pre-show and you heard a little bit about what we were going to present about, this is where we're going to talk about what we learned and what we walked away. So if you know, it's a good follow-up if you listen to that. If you didn't listen to that because you weren't going to be at the conference, this is actually a great one to be at because maybe we saved you a trip to Orlando. I, I, I'm not going to say that. I don't know. But- but I'll just sit, I guess That's I'll say bold. that. <laughs> you just said it's it. not, it's not the same. It's not the same. And you know, I mean, it's, it's great just connecting with people. It's great connecting with you guys. I know we were just bouncing ideas and riffing off each other. And, you know, I feel like we probably accomplished 10 or 15 work weeks worth of status meetings just by hanging out for an hour or two over lunch. So yes. it's always good to get together live. And that's great. Um, and we did have some practical some practical takeaways. There were some fun times, too. Like, it was great when uh, Leslie Odom Jr. was there, and he sang two songs from Hamilton. That was amazing. Um, I do, you know, Elliot Maisie, if you are listening to this podcast, and I hope you are, I'm going to suggest that you start producing Star Wars movies so that maybe you can actually have, like, Mark Hamill show up. Now that Wouldn't would that be, be cool. awesome? I've learned a lot. Awesome. Yeah. We could have stormtroopers be the enforcers that please sit down during the conference. Yeah, I may not, <laughs> exactly. I may not learn a lot about learning, but I'll learn a lot just from stuff. <laughs> We'd have some fun. So, all right. So let's dive into this. We're, we're each going to take some time and talk about some of our key takeaways. And, you know, it's not an exhaustive list, but we have some, some good things to talk about. I'm going to start. And what I wanted to talk about was games for learning which I've talked about a couple times on the show. And, and you guys know this is something that I'm really interested in. We're studying and we're doing some of this. But I had a really, really good session with Carl Cap, And Carl is the uh, really a guru in games for learning. He's got a lot of books out there. He's written a lot of articles. Uh, good guy. Really interesting guy. A lot of fun. And I went to one of the sessions that he had, which was a can you just design a game in 30 minutes or less? And this is one of my big takeaways. The answer was yes, you can. So in this session, he broke us up into teams of five. He spent maybe five minutes laying out a scenario, a typical scenario for training. And it was like, it, it doesn't matter too much what it was, but just for a point of reference, it was for customer service reps, like phone reps, and we were trying to teach them what behaviors can help them make customers happy on the phone. Like where do they typically fall into traps and what can you do to make customers happy? And Carl basically said, 
here's a list of game design principles. He spent maybe a minute running through them and he said, okay, I want you guys to make a game in the next 20 minutes and then you're going to prototype it. You're going to share it with another table. You're each going to play each other's games, give each other feedback and let's see what we come up with. And then of course we had all sorts of supplies and all that kind of stuff. And so we just dove right into this. And I, I think there were like a total of five people at our table and we just started riffing and we came up with a game that I actually thought was pretty good. Um, we borrowed really heavily from the game mechanics of apples to apples, or if you're feeling a little bodier, something like cards against humanity uh, in terms of the way the game worked. But we had situations where we had like what the client is saying on one card. And then each of the players had possible responses that they could lay out. Some of them were good and some of them were bad and they would play whichever one they thought was the most appropriate. And then whoever read that card would decide who they thought was, was quote unquote, the best, uh, the best answer. And that's how you went through it. And man, we knocked that thing out in like 15 or 20 minutes and we play tested it with the other table and they really enjoyed it. They got a lot of feedback out of it. And I think that they learned something. So it was a really cool lesson for me in terms of you can create a prototype really quickly. And of course, that's not just with games. That's with with almost anything. Uh, you can create a prototype really quickly. But one of the things that really reinforced that I think if you're going to start playing with games for learning that you have to remember is that the way game designers design games is they come up with an idea they slam it into a prototype really quick and they play test it. And then based on the play test, they make changes and they iterate and they iterate and they iterate and they play test and they play test and they play test. And that is the way you get to a point of a perfect game. So in a world like we're in where traditionally uh, it's been a little bit more linear in terms of the design of something you come up with your design up front and then you implement it and deliver it. If you're thinking about game design, iterate, iterate, iterate. So that was one of the learnings. And then the second one was this. This was one of his one of his things, and this is really kind of what we did in our game. It was the idea that the learning objectives do not have to be the same as the game objectives. So for example, in the example I just gave, the game that we gave, sometimes the responses that you could say if you were the CSR were bad. They were, and they were funny. Right. They, like they were comically bad, uh, would probably make the customer hang up. But it was OK in the context of the game to play that because the judge just had to say, this is the one I like the best. Uh, that was fine. But even in the context of doing that, we had the rule that you had to explain what you were thinking when you said that or why you would or why you wouldn't actually do this. And the content came out. And so that was a really big aha that the learning objective doesn't have to be the same as the game objective. And in fact, we experimented with another example of that where uh, we were playing with a game and it was trying to teach a set of behaviors. And instead of you won the game, if you exhibited the correct set of behaviors, you actually won the game if you exhibited the wrong set of behaviors. So you won the game by doing the opposite of what it was we were trying to teach you. And I found that that was fascinating because what that did was it gave you the opportunity to surface 
what's the resistance to the the correct behaviors? Why aren't we doing this? What are the excuses that we're making? All of this came about because in the game, we won if we kind of did it the quote unquote wrong way, but we still reflected on what the correct behaviors were and how we could overcome some of those challenges to getting it. So those were some some great ideas and I've actually already implemented all of those ideas in one of the projects that we're working on right now and creating a simulation game. So it was uh, really worthwhile to me. Hey, Bob, there's uh, one thing going back to your first point. I remember somewhere yeah. else in the conference, somebody made the comment. They said, if if gameplay is terrible, if you, you know, if you create it with yellow sticky notes, it's going to be terrible, even if you make it look really, really pretty. And I, I thought, you know, the yes. idea of, of this constant iteration, even if it's simple, uh, in fact, it's probably best if, it, if your designs are simple at first, you can make it look good later and make it more complex later. Yeah, for sure. Dana, what else did you learn while you were there? Yeah, so let me just build off of that because I went to a different session by Carl and uh, the session I went to was titled something uh, like Think Like a Game Designer and Not an Instructional Designer. And uh, there were several things that he, he, he brought up. For example, when instructional designers think about building something, they think about objectives, they think about audience instructional strategy, they wonder where the content is, those types of things. Game designers have a different mindset. They think storytelling, they think leveling up, they think difficulty or motivation and competition and those types of things. So I wanted to highlight just two or three things that he mentioned. One was um, instructional designers, uh, when they're creating an experience for a learner, they do it in a very specific order. You know, there, there's a logical sequence. There's module one, then module two, module three, module four. Whereas uh, game designers, you're, you get to determine where you go within a, a particular kingdom or particular domain, right? Often you can just decide, I want to go through this door. I want to go down that ramp or whatever it might be. Um, and he referred to that as self-determination theory. Uh, the idea that there, if you're more invested in the way things play out, you're going to be more invested in the learning experience itself. So I thought that was an interesting thing. The other one that I really liked is uh, he commented, he said that instructional designers think about mastery before performance, whereas game designers think about performance leading to mastery. And he gave a simple example. He said, if any of you played Mario Supercard, you know how it goes. You get the system set up, you turn on the switch, you hit go, and it's three, two, one, and you're off. And it's not long before you crash that cart, and then you figure out how do I get back in the car and how do I get going again? And um, you just keep failing over and over and over. And eventually you start to figure out how you can superpower your car and you figure out how to navigate some of the tougher corners and you gain your mastery through all of this performance. And I thought that was an interesting, uh, an inter interesting insight. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, the way you get it through the corners is you hit the right bumper and you get to blue sparks. I mean, that's obvious. <laughs> and then, you know, at three, two, one, if you hit X right on two, then, you know, you get the speed burst at the beginning and then Mario goes, wahoo, you know. Yeah, and so, how did you learn that? You didn't yeah, learn that yeah, the first time I, you played I, it, right? I, I don't know why it's so insightful, Dana. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is. Yes. Lots of I haven't, practice. I haven't mastered all of those things. Yet, <laughs> lots of practice, lots of listening to the, to what people are saying on the internet about how to, to do those kind of things. Yeah. 
So the, the other thing that uh, I want to shift gears a little bit, it's still building off of something Carl said, but there were several others who made comments about story and storytelling. Uh, so an illustration from Carl for, first, he talked about the use of storytelling in game design. And he the illustration he gave was, uh, and I, I don't know if, I, I'm sure you guys know the game Missile Command. It was out years and years ago. And his point was when you looked at, you know, it was it was very, very crude. Right. And he said, when you look at it, the missiles didn't really look like missiles and the command stations didn't really look like command stations. They were little blocks. But because they carefully chose the name, everyone engaged in the story of sending missiles and trying to blow stuff up. Um, and I remember, I mean, I, I played that and played it for quite a few times. And and it was I thought, OK, if I if I get my trajectory right, I'm going to bomb that thing. Um, so I, th I thought that was an interesting idea that that you can allow people to fill in a lot of um, a, a lot of missing components just by labeling something correctly or by building story into it. Um, so I, that was to me that was an interesting insight. A couple other things on storytelling. Uh, one of the guests that Elliot had, a singer. He was talking about how he sings, he, he tells stories through music. And his comment was interesting. Storytelling is a hard profession, he said. And part of the reason I resonate with that is often, you know, we, we invite our subject matter experts or who has ever teaching a class to, to tell stories, to share stories. But we don't necessarily coach them as effectively as we could or should. Um, and I think if we keep in mind that storytelling is a hard profession, that we ourselves should be practicing stories that we tell. And anybody that we're helping to you know, facilitate a class would benefit from understanding what are the good elements of storytelling and how do you, how do, you do that effectively. Um, the, the other thing related to that is he also said that storytellers are agents of change. Uh, another phrase that I like, that storytellers are agents of change. Um, and that's true because as you remember stories, whether it's, you know, a, a movie or uh, a story that someone shares with you, it impacts you and often it impacts you emotionally. And you can tie uh, specific, sometimes you can tie um, smells or, or images of where you were in, when you heard that story or all sorts of other things get tied to that story when you hear it. Um, and then the last thing, and this one came also from Leslie Odom Jr., who was uh, the, at, uh, the lead singer of Hamilton. He, he made a comment. He studied at Carnegie Mellon University. And he said, as I studied storytelling, I realized what I was doing is studying empathy. So to me, those handful of ideas about storytelling uh, were created a nice little package. There were other things, but those are things that I just kind of extracted from a, a variety of discussions that were had. I was going to say that comment with the storytelling is... is studying empathy. It reminded me of, well, I think all four of us actually did this. We did our, uh, the art of storytelling from Pixar. And that's one of the things that Pixar talks about is when we write about our characters or create characters or create storylines, we create things based off of experiences that we've done personally, or some of us have. So they've felt it. They've felt what that experience is like, which then people can relate to. And I think that's why one of the reasons Pixar always makes you cry. I can't remember a movie where I have not cried at least once in a Pixar movie, but it somehow figures out how to, how to help how people to get relate. That and I think that the kind of ties in yeah. really nicely. 
I cried in the uh, Toy Story 4 trailer. The, the trailer. <laughs> Which was not even supposed to be sad. I cried too. I haven't seen it. I'll report back. I'll report back if I cried when I watch it. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> That's great. Okay, Michelle, trip report. Go. Yep. So for me, I think one of the thing key takeaways is the conversations were really, really valuable. Um, and it kind of ties very closely with the storytelling because you'd have people go through their presentations and you're like, I just want to know, like, what was the biggest aha for you? They were very focused on like, professionally, how do I talk through this? And then when you have that side conversation with them following the discussion, that's when those aha stories came out of, oh yeah, and I didn't mention this during the session, but here's the key pieces that you know really made us step back, really made us think differently about how we were doing stuff. Um, so they got much more into that storytelling mode and that's where kind of the the aha moments were for me uh, coming from the conference. Um, coming out from two years, uh, so two years ago when I was at Maisie, I went to VR sessions and I was very excited about, you know, what were people going to talk about when they talked about virtual reality? Uh, the technology was coming down. There was heavy investment. There was a lot more consumer project products. And I was really excited about that. And it was still very high risk, high cost implementations. And this year, the dynamic was completely different in the virtual reality space. Um, what became really interesting is the balance between the technology and the emotion and empathy that people were creating in their experiences. And the teams that weren't successful in kind of the things that they were doing were very much focused on which technology they had, how high end was it, how many degrees of focus that they had, all the different things that you could do from the technology standpoint. And the ones that were really successful, their technology wasn't that high end, but they engaged people in a very meaningful way. They helped them achieve uh, kind of the goals and they really told a story as they went through those VR experiences. Um, so we've had uh, some great follow-on from the, the conference of people wanting to talk more kind of about the, the research and that kind of stuff and some good insights coming out of that. Um, the other big one is we had uh, Dan Pink talk about his book, When. Um, so if you haven't checked out that book, uh, basically what his big question was that he asked was that, you know, we're making tons of decisions every day. Sometimes they say upwards of 60,000 decisions in a day. And he said, but the, the thing that I always wonder is not so much about the decision that you're making, but when you were making that decision. Like, is it more impactful than when you're making your decisions in the morning versus the afternoon? And he wasn't finding a lot of research. And so what he found out is, you know, as you go through your day, you are having a fluctuation in how you deal with decisions, how you um, move through that process, and basically said your peak in the morning, uh, you're going to be more easily able to focus, you'll be more decisive in the decisions you're making, your follow through is much higher. Um, but in the afternoon, you hit a trough. Well, then after that, every session in the afternoon, we were like, we're in our trough, we're, we're tired. Um, so the question that kind of came out of that for all of us was really, how do you manage that? You know, we work in a global world and we have different geographies that we're working with. How do you manage through that trough? What can you do from that standpoint? Um, the other insight out of that book is, you know, really create false ends for yourself. Because uh, if you create that situation where you feel like you have a deadline that you're up against or you have a new beginning opportunity beginning of the month, beginning of the week, you know, the new year, whatever it is, 
that will have much more success for you as an individual to achieve that. Um, if you kind of put in those false beginnings and ends uh, to your experience. That book has had a big influence on me since I read it uh, in a couple of ways. As a learning designer, I think about that, like when do we schedule specific activities during the day? That's really key. And then secondly, let me just say, you will never just randomly schedule a colonoscopy anytime during the day that they give you a slot. Nope, all medical appointments are now AM appointments. In the morning. Okay, and if that has piqued your interest, you need to read the book or listen to it. Dan Pink is really good. Uh, Jake, what do you got for us? Bring us home. Sure. So I'm going to do more of a highlight of the overall week and just kind of summarize it up. And I think one of my favorite quotes of the week was actually from the former first lady, Laura Bush. Um, she had this great story about her mother-in-law, who was also first lady, Barbara Bush, and how she always told her that, quote, all we have is now. And... I don't know. I just, I wrote that down. I mean, I know that that phrase has been used multiple, multiple, multiple times, but it, I just noticed myself personally struggling with this lately. I'm either living too far in the future. I'm thinking too far ahead. I'm staring at my phone or my computer rather than what's actually in front of me. So I just felt that that session, that talk and that simple phrase really just hit me in some way. And it really connected with me personally as a dad. Um, and again, I'm, I wrote it down. Hopefully I can figure out some type of micro changes as I can just to make sure I am living more in the now. Um, but overall, from the learning side, the learning front, there was a couple of trends I've noticed. So I'm just going to run, uh, run through them. I have three. Uh, the first one was that uh, people are giving a lot of options for their people to mm -hmm. adjust for preferences. So uh, two things for this, and that is that when they're giving a lot of options, um, the one thing that worries me about that is that adjusting to people's preferences, and I know we we put to rest learning styles, but you know to adjust to people's preferences is actually increasing the amount of stuff you get, which then leads to a higher probability of confusion or feeling just lost in where someone can actually start. So that's that's a negative side of it. But what I'm encouraged by and what I've seen from uh, the conference is that, I'm seeing those when people are giving more and more options, they're giving less on less content options and more on support within the actual work. So it's a I think it's a major need that we need to do as within our profession, which is to fuse work with learning. So I'm very encouraged that I'm seeing more people discuss that. First again, just creating preferences and creating different opportunities for content. And I was glad to see that shift. So that was kind of the the nice positive about that. Um the second point was, second trend, I should say, is that there's a lot of question about how do we reach the non-learner? And I heard this quite a bit. Um, people have serious struggles on as much of their audience just doesn't really care to learn. Um, I mean, I know we deal with that. I know many people deal with that. But the, the people that I've heard from a lot is that they're just comfortable with the comfortable. Um, they're not seeing the point. They work in a very regulated um, profession, you know, they can only do so much. So, um, you know, back to that, my earlier point, uh, people just need something to help them do their job. Like that's all they need at that moment. Just give me what I need. That's it. I don't really want to take away from what I have to do. I'm too busy, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's, that's what I'm noticing. I'm just hearing people talk about that and the serious struggles that they go for is a real issue. And it was, I felt I heard it much more than I usually do. 
And I think it's an interesting area of like, how do you actually reach that non-learner? Um, and then my third trend, the third thing I've noticed is that uh, scale, the scaling question continues to be a popular question, meaning that how do we scale this technology? How would blockchain actually work for me? How would we scale a game-like approach with our new joiners? Um, you know, just those types of scaling questions that always seems to be the question that people ask during these sessions. And I think it goes back to some of our early discussions on how can us as learning professionals worry less about scale right away and focus more on the iterative and what can we do to just try something out? Um, so I'm, I'm hearing, I just, I continue to hear that scale thing. And I, and that's why I think one of our next podcast episodes, we should dedicate on really how do us as learning professionals or people in the education space take an innovative mindset in a space that again, is so familiar with doing the familiar. And that's what, made like my key takeaway from that so those are the key trends i walked away with cool cool that's awesome now jake to close out our show you said you wanted to do kind of a thanksgiving activity so are we going to be tracing our hands and making turkey pictures we could do we could do that we could sit around a table hold hands and do yeah. stuff um, we should say that so this show is going to come out right before thanksgiving in the united states so you guys in Canada, you've already had your Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoyed it. We're looking forward to ours. Everybody else, I don't know if you have a holiday, but you should be giving thanks anyway. So, okay, Jake, go. Take a look. One of, the, one of my favorite holidays in the United States, um, I think because it kicks off the holiday season for, for us here. And it's just that moment to be thankful. And I wanted to, again, this is what we do. We do this for our Thanksgiving ritual is uh, – after we eat or even before we eat, actually, we go around the room and say one thing what we're thankful for. So I'm going to start it off. And cool. the thing the thing that I'm thankful for, and maybe this is a cliche answer, but it is it is my family. And I'm I'm one, not just me, my, like I'm thankful just for my family. I'm thankful for it. They're safe. They're um, we can give them opportunities to experience things. And then third is that we we laugh a lot and I'm super thankful that we can make each other laugh. And for those who don't know, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, they're super, super funny. It's just interesting living through a, a child's life. But that to me is most thankful is that I can learn to laugh more than I can be to get upset when, you know, when they're being a two-year-old or a five-year-old. <laughs> but that, that to me is what I'm thankful for. That's awesome. Okay, I'm going to go next. I'm going to lay down the rule, no repeats, okay? Because okay. <laughs> otherwise we're all going to be like, we got to say our family because otherwise our family's going to listen to this and be like, I know, that was a cliche family? answer. It's all right. It's all good. Okay, so I'm going to go. Uh, I am thankful that we are living in the future. It's just, it, it's something I thought about this morning, even before we um, we started talking about this, Jake. It's like, yeah, I can I can drive an hour and go to a virtual reality experience where I feel like I am in Star Wars or I am in Wreck-It Ralph, uh, a fully sensory experience. Uh, I've got a computer in my pocket that is so much more powerful than the TRS-80 Model 3 that I got when I was in seventh grade uh, <laughs> and, you know, is connected to any knowledge that I practically need. Um, I have the ability to watch whatever movie or television show I might want to in a moment just by calling it up. I might have to pay a little bit to do it, but I can do it. And we could go on and on and on. So I just think it's um, as much as we still have to solve some of the problems that are cre created by all this, 
I just love the fact that we're living in the future. Yeah. Who, who's next? I'll go next. Um, so we didn't we didn't discuss not doing repeats. So I I had to think there pretty quickly. But I have to say, I'm very thankful for the type of team that we have and the people that we collaborate with. Um, I've just seen such a tremendous reach out, you know, kind of across our whole ecosystem of people who are like, hey, you know, I had an idea and I thought you might be interested and I want to share this with you or, you know, reaching out on a question that someone has. There's always kind of that that interest to connect, to dive deep into stuff. And it, it's amazing how much that collaboration, how far that's taken us um, just over the last two years. So it's very exciting to see. And I have to say, Thank goodness for my kids who let me experiment on them all the time. <laughs> awesome. All right. And I think I get to wrap it up yeah. here for us. So I won't, I won't say family, but I will say that I have an amazing wife and three amazing daughters <laughs> that I'm grateful of for. They all have, uh, we, we all have health, which uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said the first wealth is health. And so we're grateful for that. Also, our family is very passionate about education. And, uh, you know, I think you all know my youngest is about to enter her college career in about a month. And so all of my daughters will have experienced college. Um, And I I think we uh, will all agree on this. Another thing that we are all grateful for is with all the fires that are taking place out in California, we are grateful for all of those people who are not only fighting the fires at the battlefront, uh, but also for, for all those who are helping support those who have lost their homes. So there's a lot to be grateful for. And a lot of it focuses on mm-hmm. people, grateful for people. Absolutely. Amen. Okay, now we eat. <laughs> now we eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pass a pumpkin pie. So, uh, well, we should wrap this up. So let's just say this, though, on behalf of all of your Learning Geeks crew over here, we are thankful for you, our listeners. Uh, It's been really fun as we've launched this this year, and we are thankful that you are listening and you are giving us your feedback and you're talking to us when you see us. And we encourage you to keep listening and keep getting in touch with us and tell your friends. Oh, and to check out the website too. Remember, we haven't, we have, it's not much there, but we do have a website. And I know, Bob, you know the URL, right? Yep. LearningGeeksPod.com. Don't forget two Gs, LearningGeeksPod.com. Check it out. Okay, so on behalf of Michelle and Jake and Dana, this is Bob saying have a great Thanksgiving if you're in the United States. Give thanks anyway if you're anywhere else in the world. And we'll see you on our next episode of the Learning Geeks podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. Take care, everybody.